So good to see all of you. Keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 2 and join me in prayer, please. Father, I thank you for the verses that we reached in Luke's gospel uh, about the kingdom of God. I think it's important for us to also understand that there's another kingdom. I don't know that we can have a full, not just understanding, but appreciation of your kingdom without understanding the devil's kingdom, the, the kingdom that your kingdom will replace. And so as you gave us understanding of your kingdom last week, I pray this morning you would give us understanding of the devil's kingdom, because that's really the kingdom that has so much that surrounds us, Lord, that we, that we find ourselves wrestling against on this side of heaven, and really that the your kingdom crashes into and replaces. Give, give your people great understanding of these wonderful truths we're talking about this morning. I do think there's these, this is, could, could stretch people somewhat, so give us attentiveness. I pray for you to open people's hearts and minds to, to these verses that we're looking at. I think there's a, a, a greater depth and a greater understanding that's required than for many sermons. This isn't quite as plain and simple as some of the stuff we've preached about before, Lord. And so I would just ask for a supernatural um, understanding given to your people this morning and clarity given to me to explain these things. Help us to see the two kingdoms that exist and for us to just be blessed by the reality that you're king. We know how this ends. We know we see wickedness in the world. It grieves us. Even in that video, just thinking about those children that they would lose their homes or their families and, then, and not have food or water. And so we see wickedness around us that's performed by evil men. And so we thank you, Lord, that we know that the victory belongs to Christ and that your kingdom prevails. Uh, but help us as in this morning's sermon to understand the other kingdom that we're forced to endure on this side of heaven, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So tell this morning's sermon is Jesus will bind the strong man. So I want to invite you to think about the Bible this way. It's really a tale of two kingdoms. The Bible is a tale of two kingdoms. And so we talked about one of the kingdoms last week, the kingdom of God. And this morning we're going to talk about the other kingdom, which is the kingdom of Satan. Now, I foolishly thought when I began last Sunday's sermon that I was going to be able to talk about both of those kingdoms in one sermon. Probably some of you, if you'd have been in my office when I was studying, could have told me early in the week that you knew I was not going to be able to fit both of those kingdoms into one sermon. And of course, that was the case. I actually had to take material out of last Sunday's sermon, but I didn't want to spend too much more time on it. This is actually the sermon... This morning's sermon is a sermon that was, I was studying that I placed at the beginning of last Sunday's sermon, but had to take it out because it didn't fit. Now, let's begin with a question that might be an obvious one. How did Satan get a kingdom? How did Satan get a kingdom? We talk about the kingdom of God. We love that. It's thrilling to us. And then I mentioned the kingdom of Satan, and you almost cringe at that. Well, the reality is he does have a kingdom, and he does rule and reign, and so let's begin with this question. How did Satan get a kingdom? Well, let me tell you not how, but at least when he didn't get his kingdom. He did not get his kingdom when he was kicked out of heaven, and one-third of the angels joined him. If Satan had gotten a kingdom when he was kicked out of heaven, that would almost seem like he was what for his rebellion? Rewarded. Another event took place that gave Satan a kingdom, and I think the clearest passage helping us understand is found in Hebrews 2. So because we're jumping into this wonderful book, I want to briefly explain it, and this brings us to lesson one. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus being better. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus being better. 
If we put ourselves in the place of Jewish Christians, I just want you to consider how difficult it was for them to let go of all they had known religiously to embrace Christ. What did it mean that they were letting go of to replace Christ? Or what did it mean to leave Judaism for Christianity? It meant leaving what? (laughs) Come on. What are some of the things we're not doing that the Jews were doing when, that we're not doing as Christians that they were doing when part of when in, uh, part of Judaism? Sacrifices, holy days, temple worship, Christianity. What? Someone? Yeah, keeping the Sabbath. We keep it in the true and greater way. There's a true and greater rest found in Christ. Christianity was not an improved Judaism. Christianity replaced Judaism. So think of the parable of the new and old wineskins. I'll go through this quickly. Luke 5.36, no one takes a piece from a a new garment, referring to the new covenant, and puts it on an old garment, referring to the old covenant. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine, referring to the new covenant, into old wineskins, referring to the old covenant. You're not going to force the new covenant into the old covenant. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So the idea is the old and new covenants can't be combined or both will end up being ruined. But this is exactly what Jewish Christians were trying to do. Now listen to this. It goes on, Luke 5, 38, new wine, referring to the new covenant, it must be put into fresh wine skins and no one after drinking old wine referring to the Old Covenant, desires new, for he says the old is better. He says the old wine is better. And that's really what's going on. You had these Jewish uh, believers who were convinced that the old was still better. That was the situation. That's how we capture the situation with them. Because they had drank the old wine of the Old Covenant. Now, Hebrews is written to show them how much better Jesus is than everything in the Old Covenant. And so as you read through Hebrews, it's not a book about bad things. It's a book about good things and then Jesus being better than those things. So the Old Testament sacrifices were not bad or God wouldn't have commanded them. It's just that Jesus is... It's not that the, old, it's not that the Sabbath was bad. The Sabbath was good. It's just that the rest in Jesus is, is better. The Levitical priesthood was good. But the Melchizedekian priesthood that Jesus is part of is... Better Moses was a good mediator of the Old Covenant, but Jesus is a better mediator. So with this understanding in mind, look with me in Hebrews 1. In the first few verses, the author describes how much better Jesus is than the prophets. And we're all building to, we're building to something here, so stay with me, please. The author describes how much better Jesus is than the prophets. And then the author describes how much better Jesus is than the angels. Look in verse 4, Hebrews 1.4. Having become as much superior, or in other Bibles it says better than the angels, or much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is to say that Jesus became superior to or became better than the angels. When I read that, did you notice anything odd that I said Jesus became better? Or I didn't say it, but the verse says Jesus became better, which implies what? And you almost don't want to say it because it seems heretical that there was a time that he wasn't better than the angels. And that is true. Look one chapter to the right at Hebrews 2, 7. There was a time that Jesus was not better than the angels. You read that correctly. 
Hebrews 2, 7. You made him for a little while lower or inferior to the angels. And then he says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this isn't, this isn't directly referring to Jesus. It's directly referring to man and indirectly referring to Jesus because Jesus became a man. It's referring to man being lower than the angels. And so when Jesus became a man, he became lower than the angels too. So it's really kind of interesting. In Hebrews 1, you've got Jesus better than the angels. And then in Hebrews 2, you've got Jesus lower than the angels. And this doesn't seem like the argument we would expect. It almost seems like the opposite of what we would expect from the author who's supposed to be arguing how much better Jesus is, but now he argues how much lower Jesus is. So it almost sounds like a liability to his argument that Jesus would be a man and would be lower than the angels, because really what kind of Messiah wouldn't even be better than the angels? Well, the reason the author of Hebrews brings this up wasn't to introduce this liability to his readers' minds. It was really to resolve the liability or dilemma that was already in his readers' minds. He's not bringing up a question for them to have. He's trying to answer a question that he knows they already have. This is one of the most fascinating passages in the entire New Testament because it tells us why Jesus became lower than the angels. And by understanding this, we will also be able to understand how Satan obtained a kingdom of his own and why Jesus had to bring the kingdom of God from heaven to earth. Now look with me in Hebrews 2 verse 5. We'll start there. Hebrews 2 verse 5. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. This simply means that the authority in the coming age is not given to angels, it is given to man. Just to say that one more time. The authority in the coming age is not given to angels, instead it is given to man. Now take your minds back to the creation account. Who did God put in charge of creation? Man. Just listen to these verses, and in particular, Listen to the repetition of the word over to describe man being over everything. Genesis 1.26, God said, let man have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you really can't miss the repetition of the word over describing man having authority over all creation. Now, at this point, you might be saying something like this. Who is man that God would think so highly of him to do all of this for him? What is so special about man that God would put him over all creation? Well, the author of Hebrews anticipates you or his readers thinking this, and so he actually answers that question in the next verse. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 6. He said, it has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or that the son of man, that you care for him, that you would put him over all creation like this, or, or extend such glory and honor to him. You might wonder why it says, it has been testified somewhere. This is a quote of Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Why, why wouldn't the author of Hebrews just say, in, in Psalm 8, 4 through 6? Because the chapter divisions didn't come until 1227, and the verses did not come until 1551. 
And so when the author sounds kind of oddly saying it has been testified somewhere, he's looking back and quoting the Old Testament, and in particular what we know as Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Now, we don't get an answer to the question. Instead, we get a description of the situation. Look in verse 7. It's a rhetorical question. It's like, why would you do all this for man? There's really no answer to it. Man doesn't deserve all this. Look in verse 7. God says, you have made him, or the author of Hebrews will say, God said, you have made him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. So we, man, have been made lower than the angels. We talked about this earlier. And have been crowned with glory and honor, referring to the authority we are given over creation. And then verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his or man's feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him or to man, he left nothing outside his or man's control. Now, notice this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So he's describing man having authority over all creation, but he recognizes that's not the case right now. That's not how it looks presently. And this brings us to lesson two. Man forfeited his authority to Satan at the fall. Man forfeited his authority to Satan at the fall. When Adam and Eve submitted to the devil in the garden, they represented all mankind. And we know that because Adam's sin became whose sin? (laughs) Our sin, exactly. They represented us, and they gave Satan all the authority that hadn't just been given to them, but had been given to all mankind. Listen to these verses that make the point that whatever we submit ourselves to becomes our master, and we become its slaves. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, which is what Adam and Eve did in the garden, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So when Adam and Eve chose to obey Satan, they became his slaves, forfeited the authority that God gave them to Satan. Second Peter 2.9, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Adam and Eve overcome by Satan, enslaved by him. Now, mark your spot in Hebrews 2 and turn to Luke 4. Mark your spot in Hebrews 2. We'll come back to it and look at Luke 4 with me. This is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I'm sure familiar to all of us. And you might remember that Satan's second temptation was to offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And I'll just make one clarification while you're turning there. We say Satan has a kingdom, but his kingdom is made up of other kingdoms, or his kingdom is made up of the kingdoms of the world. And so it is correct to say Satan has a kingdom, but that kingdom contains all of the kingdoms of the world. And so look with me in verse 5, Luke 4, verse 5. The devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time that did belong to him, and said to Jesus, To you, I will give all this authority and their glory for, and then notice this, it has been delivered or given to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now, Satan said, it has been delivered to me, and what is the pronoun it referring to? The authority that had been given to Adam and Eve, that they gave to Satan, who he is now offering to Jesus, if Jesus will worship him. And I want you to notice that even though Jesus contended with the devil in the wilderness, 
he did, Jesus did not dispute the devil's claim here. And why is that? Because it's true. Jesus knew that this authority belonged to Satan. And then Satan says, if you'll worship, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Satan wants to give the authority he has to someone who will worship and serve him. Notice that in verse 6. He says, I give it to whom I will. Jesus rejects this offer. Satan does find someone to give this authority to, and who's that? Jesus rejected this offer. There is an individual who accepts this offer and will be given this authority. Who's that? This is the Antichrist. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 13. The Antichrist accepts the offer that Jesus rejected. Anti can mean instead of. Jesus said, you did not receive me, you will receive him who comes in my place. That was the Antichrist. So Revelation 13, this is like the Antichrist chapter. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter, Romans 4 is the justification chapter. Think in your minds, Revelation 13 is the Antichrist chapter. I'm going to read very quickly through some verses, and I just want you to notice the repetition of the words give, gave, granted, referring to Satan giving, granting his authority to the Antichrist. Verse 2, the dragon, referring to Satan, he gave the beast, referring to the Antichrist, power, his throne, great authority. Verse 4, so they worship the dragon, the devil who gave authority to the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. Verse 5, the beast was given, the Antichrist is given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies. He's given authority. Verse 7, it was granted or given to the beast to make war with the saints and overcome them. Authority was given to him. Verse 14, the Antichrist deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted or given to do in the sight of the beast. Verse 15, the beast was granted or given power to give breath to the image of the beast. It's almost like the Antichrist doesn't have anything that he's, except what he's been given, what has been granted to him, all of this power and all of this authority from Satan. Now, what's one of the reasons that we see wicked people? Pol Pot, uh, Nero, Stalin, Hitler, with great power and authority. Why is that? Why do we see individual? And sometimes you can wonder, well, with God being sovereign, why do we see individuals in such positions of power and leadership who are ungodly or wicked? Because the devil can give authority to individuals that he chooses, and he has given authority to plenty of wicked people like these men. 1 John 2.18, children, it's the last hour, and you've heard the Antichrist is coming now listen to this. We know that. We just read Revelation 13. But then it says, so now many antichrists have come. That can be kind of confusing to people. It just means that there have been many lowercase antichrists through history, those individuals I mentioned, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, who accept the authority Satan's given them, but there's a capital A antichrist coming, and all of those lowercase a antichrists prefigure the capital A Antichrist to come. Now that we understand Satan as a kingdom, let's talk about what that kingdom is. 
There's kind of this idea, and I think much of this developed in the Middle Ages when they did plays where Satan was totally misrepresented on stage by having, you know, it's like, we need people to recognize when the devil comes out. Everyone loves the titanic struggle between good and evil. We'll make plays about God versus the devil, and it needs to be evident when the devil comes on stage. So we're going to give him what? And how is he typically represented? We're going to give him the pitchfork. We're going to give him the horns. We're going to give him the long tail. He's going to be all red. Interestingly, in Scripture, Paul says to the Corinthians that when the devil or his demons come, they look like angels of light. So they do not look, you know, sulfur coming off of them and fuming and hideous and things like that. I mean, it's probably one of the reasons that Eve was comfortable engaging in a fairly intimate conversation with the devil in the garden. So there's this idea that Satan's kicked out of heaven, he's thrown into hell, that's his kingdom, and so God is ruling in heaven, and conversely, Satan is ruling in hell. You know, some of the most common imagery is Satan sitting on this throne, his pitchfork in his hand, and that is completely false. Hell, first, hell is not a kingdom. It is a place of unimaginable torment. Satan is not in hell now, and when he is thrown into hell, he will not be ruling there. Just because you're in Revelation 13, turn to chapter 20. I always try to decide very carefully where I'm going to have you turn. Try not to have you waste too much time in the sermon turning different places. Because we're in Revelation 13, look at Revelation 20. Here's the description of Satan being cast into hell after the millennial kingdom. So this is after the millennial kingdom. It's before the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived the nations or kingdoms that he ruled over was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Notice this, where the beast, the antichrist, and the false prophet already were. So interestingly, that's what you get for serving Satan. You get to find yourself in hell before Satan himself. The individuals who accepted his power and authority end up going to hell before him. It says, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I mean, it's not even, it could just say forever, but the strongest way in Greek to describe eternity is, you'll see this frequently, forever and ever. Just so you say, well, just, when does forever end? I mean, does forever go on? It's like forever and ever. It never ends, the torment that they experience here. So this is when Satan finally finds himself in hell, and he's not ruling there. He's not reigning. This is not his kingdom where he's worshipped or adored. There's that very false incredibly foolish one of the one of the most foolish things people could say well heaven is or hell is where i'll go and i'll party and i'll be with my friends and it's just unimaginable torment people experience there now here's the question if satan is not in hell yet where is he well there's one window in scripture into satan's location from a conversation that God and Satan himself have at the beginning of what book? Job 1.7. Man, I am so blessed by you guys. <laughs> when I ask something like that and you answer it, it's just there are not many things that bless me more than that. And that's what you want as a pastor. I mean, you don't want a, a church that thinks your jokes are funny. Obviously, if you wanted a funny pastor, you wouldn't even be at this church because I'm not. Whatever the gene is that lets you be cool or funny, I never got that gene in my life. Um, so what you want is you want a church that loves God's word, knows God's word. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. 
The very next chapter, we read something similar. The Lord says to Satan, Job 2.22, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. This is where Satan spends his time going to and fro on the earth. And why is that? Why would Satan spend his time going to and fro on the earth? Because that's his kingdom. And this brings us to lesson three. Satan is the ruler over this world. Satan is the ruler over this world. Satan received the authority that man had been given to rule over the world, and that's what Satan rules over. It is his kingdom. John 12, 31. I'm not going to have you turn all these stuff. Just listen to this. It's overwhelmingly clear. John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls Satan the god of this world, lowercase g. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Just one more time. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So that is why we see so many incredibly strong verses in Scripture discouraging us from having any relationship with the world. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. 2 Timothy 4, 10, Paul criticizes Demas for being in love with this present world. James 4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, you're kind of like, wow, I mean, why such strong verses against the world? What, what? I'd expect these real strong verses against murder and adultery or rape. And, and here we get these strong verses against the world. Well, why is that? Because the world is ruled by the devil. It is his kingdom. You find yourself surrounded by the filthiness of this world. Do you want to know why you don't notice it? Don't be offended when I say this, because you're like pigs rolling around in the mud. Pigs never look at each other and say, what? What are we doing? Why are we rolling around in the mud like this? I mean, that's all they know. This is, this is all you know. You don't know God's kingdom. You only know the devil's kingdom that you're surrounded with, so it just doesn't look that bad to you. It doesn't look that filthy. The movies don't seem that bad. The music doesn't seem that bad. The clothing doesn't seem that bad. The behavior doesn't seem that bad because it's all we see. There's no standard above us that allows us to see how wicked and ungodly this actually is. We can't see things the way the world we can't see the world the way God does. So what I wanted to do, I wanted to help you see the way an evil person or a worldly person would see the kingdoms of this world and then the way God sees the kingdoms of the world. Let me say that one more time. The book of Daniel does an incredible job showing us the way a worldly man would see the kingdoms of the world and then the way God views those same kingdoms. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you might know that you get to see the kingdoms of the world twice. And you could wonder why. 
So listen to this. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. He's one of the most vicious, power-hungry men in history. He dreams. <laughs> I don't know what you dream about. He dreamt about power and fame. When Nebuchadnezzar laid his head down at night, he dreamt about power and fame. And one night he has this dream about the great kingdoms of the world that he craved. And how did these look to a power-hungry, worldly man like Nebuchadnezzar? How do those kingdoms look? Come on, what do they look like? What did he see? He sees this great, beautiful, majestic statue. The head of gold is Babylon, the chest and the arms of silver are Medo-Persia, the belly and the thighs are Greece, and then the legs of iron are Rome. So he calls Daniel to interpret the dream, and Daniel says, You, O king, were dreaming, and behold, there's a great image, and this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. So when an evil man like Nebuchadnezzar looks at the kingdoms of the world, he sees excellence. He sees majesty and greatness, beauty. Now, in chapter 7, God gives Daniel a vision of the exact same kingdoms. And by giving Daniel a vision, the idea is, this is how these kingdoms look to me, Daniel. When God gives someone a vision, it's how things look to God. And how did those same kingdoms look to God when he gave Daniel this vision? Wild, ravenous, ferocious, vicious animals, and even the last one, a a monster. Daniel 7, 7, he says, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast. It's hideous, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, and has great iron. It looks like a, something out of a horror movie. Great iron teeth, devours, breaks in pieces, stamps what's left with his feet, describing what kingdoms of the world do. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is how the kingdoms of the world look to God, and these are the kingdoms that Satan rules over. Now, I want to read what happens to these kingdoms But first, let me explain a few things so this makes sense. There's a stone that crashes into these kingdoms, and this stone represents last Sunday's sermon, the kingdom of God. This stone is the kingdom of God, and it just crashes into these kingdoms. Listen to this, and then fills the whole earth, describing the way the kingdom of God fills the whole earth in the future. Daniel 2.34, as you looked... There was a stone cut out by no human hand, which is to say it was not created. And it struck the image, and then it was, the image was broken in pieces. It became like chaff. The wind carried it away. Not a trace of the statue, which is to say there won't be a trace of these kingdoms left. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then Daniel gives a description, so you don't have to think it's my opinion. A few verses later, Daniel 2.44 The God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom that will never be destroyed and nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and then it shall stand forever. So that's why we can be encouraged whenever we see really ungodly or wicked things happening that we know the end of the story. We know the victory that belongs to the Lord, his his kingdom being set upon the earth, the other kingdoms being like chaff blown away. And this brings us to lesson four. The Gospels record the kingdom of God crashing into Satan's kingdom. 
Now we're tying together last Sunday's sermon with this Sunday's sermon. The Gospels record the kingdom of God crashing into Satan's kingdom. So last Sunday's sermon was about the kingdom of God coming from heaven to earth. This morning's sermon is about Satan's kingdom on the earth. And look at me, I want you to think about something for a second. If Satan has his kingdom on the earth, and it's established, and it's settled, and he rules over them, rules over it, his kingdom, or rules over his kingdom that contains the kingdoms of the world, and then Christ brings his kingdom from heaven, if God and the person of Jesus Christ brings his kingdom from heaven to earth, what do you have? You have a titanic collision. You have the crashing of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan. Or you have, in the language or imagery of Daniel, a stone crashing into an image and destroying it. Now go ahead and turn back to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, hopefully you still have it marked. And look at verse 9. Hebrews, this verse is incredibly deep. It could take an entire sermon or sermons just to unpack it. So read this with me carefully, please. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see him, this is Jesus, we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, referring to when he became a man. At the incarnation, he's made lower than the angels because man is lower than angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Keep that in mind, that he had to die so that by the grace of God, he might taste death, 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 excuse me, for everyone. This is about Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. This is about the redemption that he accomplishes on our behalf, that he experienced death to accomplish our redemption. Now, let me briefly explain Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. Okay, it's going to be super important for you to follow me on this. According to God, do you remember when Ahab goes to Naboth and asks for his vineyard, and Naboth wouldn't give it to him, even though Ahab seemed to have made a gracious offer. Why didn't he? Because Naboth was a godly man, and that he knew, according to God's law, land was supposed to stay with the original owner. So according to God's law, land has to be restored to the original owner. Man forfeits his authority over creation, or let's just say over the land, to Satan, but it's going to have to be restored to man. Now, this restoration is known as redemption. That's what redemption is. It's buying back, purchasing back. And to redeem something always involves a price. Because man forfeited the land when he sinned, and the wages of sin is death, the redemption price is death. That's what's required to redeem creation from the clutches of Satan back to man. If the owner could not redeem the land, and you know this from the book of Ruth, if the owner could not redeem the land, which man can't because we're the ones who forfeited it in the first place, and have continued, so you say, well, what about someone besides Adam? Well, who's the sinless person? Adam forfeited it because of what? He committed sin. Now, what person since Adam, don't say Jesus, you ruin it for me, <laughs> What person since Adam has come and been sinless? You'd forfeit the land too. Don't get, you guys get upset at Adam and Eve. Don't get upset at them. You would have done the same thing because you have been doing the same thing. <laughs> it's so easy to say, oh, if Adam and Eve hadn't done that, well, we would have done it because we've been sinning too. We aren't better than them. 
So if the owner could not redeem the land, then the nearest relative or someone whose kin to the original owner could, hence the title kinsman redeemer. And this is why an angel couldn't. You say, why couldn't an angel be the Messiah? Why couldn't an angel come and accomplish redemption? Because an angel would not be related to man. An angel would not be kin or could not be our kinsman redeemer. Another sinful man can't do it because the land's forfeited because of sin and every man has sinned since then. A sinless man was needed. So God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ to be our kinsman redeemer. And that's largely what's in view in a somewhat veiled way in verse 9 when it says that Jesus became a little lower than the angels and experienced death to accomplish our redemption. Now look at verse 14 in the same chapter, Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, Jesus became flesh and blood. This is the incarnation right here. For him to accomplish our redemption, he must also have been a man or been flesh and blood. And then through his death that he might, notice this, destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. Now, if we get an elevated view of the Gospels, we can think of them as Jesus destroying Satan and his kingdom. This verse is describing what we see a record of in the Gospels, which is Jesus bringing his kingdom and destroying the kingdom of Satan. This is why he came, 1 John 3 Jesus was manifested that he might destroy the works or even the kingdom of the devil. And the Gospels record Jesus leading his kingdom victoriously over Satan's kingdom. Jesus destroys the works of Satan repeatedly as he casts out demons, as he sets people free from being held by Satan. Most of what you're reading in the Gospels is the kingdom of God overcoming the kingdom, even healing. Listen to this. Luke 13, 16, Jesus said, shouldn't this woman whom Satan has bound for 18 years be loosed from this bondage? So even the physical healings revealed an overthrowing of Satan's kingdom. Acts 10, 38 says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now go ahead and turn to Matthew 12. I think that's the last place we turn this morning. Turn to Matthew 12. This is the last place we turn. So here's the context while you turn there. Just let this wash over you. The kingdom of God is overthrowing the kingdom of Satan. The strongest example of Christ's victory over the demonic realm would be the exorcism of demons. That makes sense, right? Jesus can heal but it doesn't look that much like he's overthrowing Satan's kingdom. But when he's casting out demons, it's like the kingdom of God has come to earth and is overthrowing Satan's kingdom. And so what do the religious leaders say? This is bad because Jesus is getting significant credibility with the Jews, which we can't have. So do you see the dilemma that the religious leaders faced? Because the religious leaders cannot deny Jesus' exorcisms, but they also don't want to acknowledge Jesus' exorcisms because that would make him look like the Messiah, that would make him look like his statements are true, that would make him look like he's overthrowing Satan's kingdom. So what was the absurd thing that the religious leaders came up with? Well, 
We can't deny Jesus is performing exorcisms, so we'll say that he's performing exorcisms using what? Satan or demonic power. Look in verse 24, Matthew 12, 24. When the Pharisees heard it, heard about the exorcism Jesus performed, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, another name for the devil, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, when I think about the religious leaders, I don't think of them as being stupid. I think of them as being rebellious, but right here they look stupid. Because obviously if Satan possessed someone, or if Satan gave his power and authority to someone, what is the last thing that person would do with satanic satanic power? Cast out demons. Fight against his own kingdom. Satan is not going to use people to cast out his own demons. So Jesus says in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So in other words, Satan's kingdom would not last if Satan was working against himself or casting out his own demons. He would be destroying his own kingdom. Verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. He's fighting himself. How then will this kingdom stand? So if Satan's using Jesus to cast out demons, Satan's basically casting out himself. Satan casting out Satan in verse 26. He'd be the ruler of a kingdom he's trying to destroy. Verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And all this means is the religious leaders had exorcists too. I don't know whether they cast out demons or not, but the religious leaders had exorcists who claimed to perform exorcisms. And if casting out demons showed that people were working with Satan, the religious leaders would have to acknowledge that their exorcists were also working with Satan. And then as a result, the religious leaders' exorcists would criticize or judge the religious leaders for their words against them. That's what he means in verse 27. Now in verse 28, Jesus says, notice this, but if it is by the Spirit of God, if I'm doing this with God's power and not satanic power, casting out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus says, if I am casting out demons using the power of God, then you must acknowledge that the kingdom of God has come from heaven to earth and is conquering the devil's kingdom. Now Jesus tells them exactly what is happening. Look at verse, we built up to this verse. This is the verse that I wanted you to see. Verse 29, I'm going to look at it piece by piece. Verse 29, he says, how can someone enter a strong man's house? The strong man is Satan. His house is his kingdom. Just one more time. How can someone enter a strong man's house, the strong man of Satan, the house is his kingdom, and plunder his goods? What, or maybe I should say, who are Satan's goods? Who are Satan's goods? Unbelievers, right? Unbelievers are Satan's goods. They belong to him. They're part of his kingdom. Verse 29 goes on, and then Jesus says, unless he first binds the strong man. So the only way someone can enter the strong man's house or enter Satan's kingdom, because it's like if you're a man and you protect your house, nobody enters your house unless they first bind you. And for them to be able to do so, they would have to be stronger than you. So the only way someone can enter the strong man's house or Satan's kingdom and bind him is if he's stronger than the strong man or stronger than Satan, which Jesus is. And then, indeed, he may plunder his house or plunder his goods or plunder unbelievers from his house or from his kingdom. 
And this is what happens every time Jesus cast out a demon. But for our day, more importantly, this is what happens every single time Jesus saves someone. If today someone was unsaved or an unbeliever was part of Satan's kingdom, listen to this sermon or listen to the communion devotion or listen to the music, became convicted repented and put their faith in christ this is an individual that jesus has plundered from satan's kingdom to bring into his kingdom and this brings us to lesson five jesus binds the strong man to deliver us into his kingdom or to deliver people into his kingdom jesus binds the strong man to deliver us into his kingdom people love to lie to each other People love to tell lies that sound good. And people love to believe those lies when they sound good. And probably one of the worst lies is everyone is a child of God. Everyone loves to preach that lie, and everyone loves to believe that lie. And if that lie were true, nobody would go to hell, everyone would go to heaven, nobody would need to repent, and basically Jesus died for no reason at all. There are two types of children, children of God and children of Satan. 1 John 3.10, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil so we even have scripture clearly telling us they're children of the devil john 1 12 to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god so they became children of god which suggests or implies that they were not previously children of god they had to become god's children they weren't earlier now if you take your minds back to last sunday's sermon the last lesson nobody is born into the kingdom of god do you remember that lesson last week nobody's born into the kingdom of god well if nobody's born into the kingdom of god what kingdom are they born into when there's only one other kingdom satan's kingdom in jesus first coming he came to plunder people from satan's kingdom to bring them into his kingdom acts 26 18 describes salvation as jesus delivering people listen to this from the power of satan to god Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness or from Satan's kingdom and transferred us, given us new citizenship, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Peter 2.9 says we are his own possession. We are called out of darkness, called out of Satan's kingdom into his marvelous light. And all of these verses are ways of describing what that parable pictured which is the stronger man, Jesus, breaking into the strong man's house, Satan, and plundering his goods from his kingdom and placing them in Christ's kingdom. Philip Riken said, If you wish to come into God's kingdom, you must ask God to rescue you from the kingdom of darkness and to bring you into the kingdom of the son he loves. You must renounce your deal with the devil and swear allegiance to Christ the King. If you have any questions about anything I shared this morning or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be a friend after service and I would consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you brought your kingdom from heaven to earth through your son or that your son brought that kingdom. We thank you for the victory that Christ has over sin and death. We don't yet see that victory fully established because as we talked about last week, the kingdom was brought spiritually, but in your second coming, we look forward to that kingdom being established physically. 
I feel like there's truths that we're covering in these sermons that are building us up to the future verses we're, we're encountering in Luke 17. And so help your people, myself included, to remember what's being taught, Lord, so that we can better understand the verses that are coming. I, I pray you plant these truths deep in our heart and give us great appreciation for your son, for what he's done, the victory that he's given us. And we thank you for the citizenship we can have in your kingdom that you would plunder us from the devil's kingdom. I pray, Lord, for anyone who would be here who would still be part of Satan's kingdom, that they would repent, put their faith in Christ, and be saved, delivered from darkness to light. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.